climate, the coastline, and the race for mayor. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. We're going to devote most of our show to one of the important issues that the mayor, uh, next mayor of the city, will deal with. And the candidates for mayor are certainly talking about, and that's what to do about the city's 500-plus mile coastline, its potential, its vulnerabilities to climate change, the environmental justice issues that play out on that coastline. We'll have Anel Hernandez, the associate director of the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance. And I'd like to welcome on our next guest to talk about that from a different point of view, a different frame. That's Anel Hernandez. She is the associate director of the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance. Anel, welcome to Max and Murphy. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. And one thing I want to get to right away, and Courtney from the Waterfront Alliance talked about this, about areas of the city that were, you know, very much affected by Superstorm Sandy, which it's crazy to think about was almost nine years ago. We saw in Red Hook, we saw in the Rockaways, we saw in parts of Canarsie, low and moderate income areas really devastated by that storm. And One thing that I think is kind of a framing issue for the discussion today and in the campaign is how far have we come since then under Mayor de Blasio and I suppose under the tail end of Mayor Bloomberg? What kind of progress would you say has been made in terms of resiliency for the city's waterfront? What what have we gotten done and what do you see as the big parts of the to-do list? Great. Thank you so much for that question. You know, environmental justice and frontline communities in New York City face intersecting climate vulnerabilities, environmental health issues, and social risks. Industrial waterfront communities, for example, they're dealing with gentrification and coastal flooding. Heat vulnerable communities lack open space, green space, and adequate heat mitigation plans. And the city really needs to start spending more attention on this because these compounding vulnerabilities are just going to get worse. And they need to provide the resources both for the infrastructure and the community resilience that we need to become more prepared for these climate emergencies that we're going to be dealing with. So nine years after Superstorm Sandy, New Yorkers are still waiting for the needed investments in coastal protection and in shoreline resiliency construction. We've seen that the city continues to prioritize area like the areas like the financial district in lower Manhattan, but is leaving behind other flood vulnerable communities across the city, including areas like Hunts Point, East Harlem, North Brooklyn, and um, Sunset Park. And these are areas that are home to really important critical infrastructure. You know, the uh, Hunts Point is, fo- is home to the Hunts Point Food Distribution Center. Um, in the Rockaways, Lower East Side, and, and East Harlem, there's a lot of New York City housing authority developments. And then there's also other critical areas like the significant maritime and industrial areas or SMIAs and Superfund sites that we need to be focusing on as well. So talk just like for, for listeners who don't deal with this stuff every day, and, and I certainly don't don't either, but you do um, make it a little more granular for us. Take one of those areas like, say, Sunset Park. Um, and, we, you know, you know what the vulnerabilities are. What are the kind of things specifically the city might do? There? Are we talking about a flood wall? Are we talking about um, some kind of pumping system? Is this about fixes to individual buildings? Like what is the stuff that we actually need? Great. Yeah. I mean, from our perspective, what we really want to see is a focus on 
um, natural and nature-based interventions. Things like living shorelines, wetlands, you know, vegetated dunes, um, and just overall more green infrastructure along our coastlines. Um, and, you know, investments that are not just for the day of the emergency, but investments that can provide benefits um, and tons of co-benefits to the community. And, and one great example is Hunts Point. You know, they engaged in a five-year process um, to to put forth recommendations for resiliency. And, you know, we had federal and city money to do research, but ultimately our priorities were not funded. Um, NIJA worked closely with the Point CDC, one of our member organizations, to uplift the need for waterfront access, for waterfront parks, um, and specific protections for the food distribution center. Um, so that's just one example of what it can be. But each neighborhood is completely different, right? And each neighborhood's going to need um, different types of interventions. And each neighborhood needs to have community engagement to help shape what that looks like. What do you think? I mean, this is a call for speculation. Or maybe you have some, some information to share. But why do you think de Blasio and his team have been um, slow to address these issues? Because obviously they've, they have been front and center since Superstorm Sandy hit. Yeah, I think, um, of course, we're dealing with one of the biggest challenges that many of us are going to see in our timeline, right? These are these are really challenging issues. And I just think that oftentimes the city looks at things in a very siloed way, right? We're, we're building um, green infrastructure for stormwater. We're building, you know, parks and, and we're thinking about coastal resiliency and we, we're doing all of this separately, there needs to be like a, a more cohesive approach. There needs to be more funding allocated to these types of projects. And of course, that is a challenge. So the city needs to be working more closely with the state and with the federal government, especially now more than ever, to figure out how we can get those funding streams that we need to make New York City more resilient. Speaking of the federal government, one of the kind of big uh, elephants in the room in the climate resiliency discussion in New York City over the past several years have been has been this study by the uh, federal uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers of the harbor and questions of what kind of uh, structure or interventions might be created to protect the the coastline and that's that's been kind of a, an interesting issue because it's been a huge time consuming very costly study. Um, I get the sense that some local policies perhaps were being held up as we waited to see what they were going to say, and then the funding for that was stopped and then resumed. Um, and, of course, there were some questions and some some concerns about the direction that the Corps of Engineers was heading in. Now that that has restarted, what role do you think the Army study will play, and do you see a major federal role in creating some kind of coastal protection for New York City? Yeah, I think the federal government has to play a really important role. Um, the HAT study, the, the Army Corps study, of course, I have a lot of critiques about it, but it is a very important opportunity to begin to address um, these flood risks to vulnerable population, to housing, to critical facilities, to ecosystems and infrastructure in New York City. Um, we were definitely opposed to the, you know, 109 or estimated $119 billion seawall that they were hoping to put out there in New York Harbor. Um, but 
but when the process was still going on last year, there were other recommendations that weren't getting as much attention. Um, they had some ideas in there about, you know, uplifting more nature-based and shoreline interventions. And what I'm hoping is that when this process gets reignited, um, that will be the stronger focus of the report. And Nija and our members, you know, we we um, submitted comments and responded to what was coming out of the Army Corps process. Um, and now, you know, we're, we're living in a different time. We have a different federal government. So um, I'm hopeful to see what comes next. Yeah, and one of the objections, not to get too deep in the weeds, but uh, one of the objections to the uh, study, and I think this goes to your point earlier about green infrastructure, is that it was talking about a seawall, and, and really that was crafting a defense to you know the rare devastating storm. But as our earlier guest said, and I know uh, the EGA, AGA has certainly talked about, you know, the threat of, of sea level rise is really, for some neighborhoods, uh, about a daily um, risk um, and inconvenience and inundation from from water and what's called sort of sunny day flooding, where you have at every high tide um, neighborhoods getting getting uh, inundated. So this is not just about sort of the occasional devastating storm. This is about a kind of ever present risk. Exactly, exactly. You know, um, the New York City panel on climate change's most recent report demonstrated, you know, that the concern is not just um, the threat of hurricanes and storm surge, but also sea level rise, tidal patterns, and like you said, sunny day flooding. Um, and so the Army Corps' seawall proposal definitely missed the mark on that. Um, it was not addressing those issues. It was not providing the co-benefits. Like, we, we want to see that amount of money, over $100 billion, invested into shoreline interventions that, you know, provides a lot of other resources for the community. Um, and I think that, you know, the seawall also didn't consider what the impacts would be on other communities, right, that are on the other side of the seawall. It didn't consider what it means for the water quality um, within New York Harbor if they built that, right? We're still dealing with the combined sewer overflows every time it rains, into New York, in, rains in New York City, raw, fluid, raw sewage flows into our waterways. So what does that mean and what is the impact on water quality in New York City? Um, so there's a lot of considerations and a lot, a lot of additional research that needs to go into, into this process. And hopefully um, a lot more community um, engagement. I'm sorry to step on you there. On the issue of, of, you know, what some people call managed retreat, the question of whether at some point it will be deemed wise for the city to um, get people to somehow move out of areas that are very vulnerable to the risk of sea level rise. When you hear that discussion, I, I'm sure some particular environmental justice concerns are raised. Um it does seem like that is a topic that maybe the next mayor will have to deal with. What are some of the considerations that you want to have on the table when the city starts considering, you know, whether we need to end human occupation of some areas and how we go about achieving that? What are some of the things we should be thinking about? So, so I'm, I'm going to kind of flip that question because, you know, there are a lot of folks that are talking about managed retreat, but the conversation that I want to have is about, one, affordable housing, and two, why don't we deal with the, you know, extreme development of luxury housing on our waterfront? You know, we can't have the conversation of managed retreat at all if, you know, Mayor de Blasio is proposing to extend, you know, the financial district in lower Manhattan to 
you know, build infill to build yet more high rises and call it a coastal protection project. So there's a lot of conversations that need to be had in how we reach climate equity and climate justice in New York City. And just to talk about an issue that is obviously part of the climate change conversation, but not directly a coastal one, and that is the issue of heat. And that's something I know that, that you've been active on, the question of what extreme heat will do to the city. Uh, that, that obviously raises kind of different issues for the, for the city and the next mayor in terms of infrastructure or operations. What are the things the city should be doing when it comes to confronting that particular climate risk? Definitely. And thank you for bringing that up because, right, hurricanes is something that might happen every few years, but extreme heat events and heat waves is something that New York City is going to have to deal with every single year. Um, So low-income communities and communities of color are facing disproportionate risks related to um, heat issues, related to air quality issues and respiratory diseases, places like the South Bronx, North Brooklyn, Upper Manhattan, Um, And one of the strategies that the city can use to deal with that is really beginning to expand um, our urban forest. And this goes back to, to, you know, all of the different nature-based solutions that we need to be utilizing. Um, Street trees can provide a lot of benefits. It can store carbon. It could um, absorb harmful localized co-pollutants. And it can mitigate urban heat island effect and, you know, provide shading in a neighborhood on somebody's street. And so street trees in the urban forest plays an an important role in dealing with our long-term urban heat island issues. And I would love to see the city invest more in not just expanding our urban forest, but also maintaining it well. And we would love to see an expansion of things like Cool Neighborhoods NYC, you know, the second round of Million Trees NYC, just like a dramatic expansion of that alongside, of course, the needed um, preparedness programs so that we're taking care of vulnerable commu- uh, vulnerable populations like the elderly and children that are particularly vulnerable to heat waves. So talking about all of this, uh, the coastal protections issue, the question of environmental justice issues in that context, extreme heat, um, luxury development on the waterfront, are any of the mayoral candidates talking about this Not as much as I would like them to. (laughs) I think that they're, you know, it's a difficult question, right? Because these are very large infrastructure projects that need to be done. Um, So I think there should be a greater focus on that for sure. Um, I am concerned about some of the things that I've heard, or (laughs) I think one of the candidates said that they wanted to build a casino on Governor's Island. (laughs) And that to me is the exact opposite of the climate justice policies that we should be having in New York City. Um, So I would love to hear them talk about it more and really figure out how we're going to strategically work with the state, with the federal government to make this happen. And I guess to kind of turn that question around is, you know, in many of the areas of the city that uh, the Environmental Justice Alliance is most active in, that are most vulnerable to some of these effects of climate change, they also are vulnerable to many of the other issues that the mayoral campaign is talking about, whether it's COVID-19 or affordable housing, problems with schools, um, issues with equity in the workplace. Among voters in those areas, do you think that climate issues um, do they have enough buzz? Do they have enough teeth? Do people 
do people care about this stuff as much as they do, say, affordable housing? Does it make sense for candidates to be devoting time and attention to this issue? Or is this something they should probably you know, deal with once they get elected, but not spend that much time talking about it now? So, um, you know, my organization, the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance, we are a network of 11 community-based organizations throughout the city. And the communities that they represent, yes, this is an important issue because we understand that it's not just about climate. It's, it's about health. It's about jobs. It's about justice. There's a lot of different impacts that having a strong climate resiliency policy will have in all of the other issues that, that you covered, right? When thinking about schools, we want schools that are safe for, for kids, schools that have, you know, um, environmental justice curriculum, schools that are not located next to a highway or next to a power plant. We want affordable housing that's energy efficient. Um, we want people not to, you know, have to go to the emergency room for asthma because they've grown up their whole life in an industrial community. So climate is not just climate. It touches across essentially every single part of a New Yorker's experience. And I want to ask one last question, a slightly different issue before we let you go, and that's about uh, the question of uh, fossil fuel use in the city. There's been a lot of talk about this recently, obviously Indian Point shutting down the question of what we will fill that gap with. And right here in New York City, there are some controversies about uh, whether to uh, permit uh, fossil fuel burning peaker plants to continue, whether to build new pipelines. Um, and the natural gas companies and others say if we don't do that, it's it's lower income uh, customers who will bear the brunt of, of higher rates. What do you think about that? Do you think the city is ready to, from this moment, begin moving away from fossil fuel infrastructure, or is there a need for like a transition period? Thank you for this question. Um, we actually have a uh, a campaign called our Peak Coalition, where we have been fighting peaker plants and advocating for their closure. We have the technology that we need, renewable energy, energy storage, energy efficiency, um, to start closing down these polluting facilities. And the last thing that we need is new fossil fuel-powered peaker plants in New York City. And so we're fighting against that as well. New York State has the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act that is about aggressive climate targets and about environmental justice. And we need to start meeting those goals. And the, the transition can be done equitably if we're also investing in things like community solar, in utility bill assistance. If done right, there are a lot of health, climate and job benefits to be had. So, no, we need to stop fossil fuel infrastructure now, whether it's a new plant, whether it's a new pipeline. We need to stop it now. Thank you very much, Anel Hernandez, who is the Associate Director of the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance, for briefing us on these important issues. And I hope you'll come back on Max and Murphy soon. Great. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Well, Ben, a couple of interesting conversations about uh, really important issues, um, really issues with, with kind of a, a much broader scope than, than some of the things we discuss on the show. Uh, any quick reactions? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's a lot, a lot to chew on there. I, one of the things I'm thinking about very much is one question that you just asked, which is about 
how voters are thinking about these issues and is it, you know, are these various topics that relate to climate and resiliency and the, the coastlines and the waterfront and climate change, you know, how much are these really top of mind? It's, you know, it's been a long time since Sandy. Uh, we've, we still see the impacts of climate change regularly, but not in the same drastic, deadly way. And, um, you know, I don't know how much this stuff is top of mind for voters, even though arguably it should be in the top couple issues that people care about. Um, but, you know, candidates are talking a lot about it. They're putting out resiliency plans, climate plans. They're talking about environmental justice. So, you know, it's part of the conversation, but I'm sort of interested and a little bit worried about its place in the conversation. But um, what about you? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Definitely. I think, you know, I, I think there is much more awareness of it than, say, four, eight or 12 years ago. Um, yes. I think, uh, uh, you know, and, and in surprising, you know, areas of the of the political spectrum, you know, you'll find um, people who are uh, hunters who are interested in conservation and in ways and worried about climate change uh, because it affects their, you know, their favorite hobby. So it's something that a lot of people are, I think, developing the vocabulary for. The question is, with so many things to talk about in this mural campaign, such a crowded field, and only you know now a dwindling amount of time to talk about it, I don't know how much attention uh, it will get. And, and I guess, as, as Anel pointed out, it does tie into so many other issues, especially on the housing and development front, questions of density, um, priority, subsidy, all of that ties in so directly to um, – to these questions of how we are preparing the city for these uh, apparently unavoidable effects of climate change. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what I think these conversations with these great guests got at is just how much important, um, you know, meaty, meaty uh, stuff there is here from everything related to just resiliency and preparing for big storms to economic development and to recreation and to public health in various ways and environmental justice in, in a number of ways. And so there's, you know, a lot to push the candidates on and push the current mayor on in his final uh, half a year or so and the next mayor on because there's so much opportunity. Um, you know, there's so much opportunity here also in the face of some various crises and threats that um, you know, a mayor with real vision and, of course, with a real ability to actually execute, um, you know, a lot could get done. I mean, that's one of the most remarkable things about the projects that have been announced since Sandy hit is how few of them are really happening, uh, shovels in the ground and such. Have a great week in the greatest city in the world.